warning, the following program contains critical thinking, honest opinions, viewpoints on culture that may seem conservative, and a positive view on absolute detestable things such as marriage and children. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hello, my fellow beings of the human race. Apologies to any furries out there. I don't aim to offend, but in the fashion of most other people on these types of platforms, the powers that be whispered into my ear late, late in the wee hours of the night, um, telling me that I do, in fact, have to pick a specific demographic of people um, that I don't want consuming my content. So unfortunately, my furry friends, you have won the draw on this one. How dare you tune into this podcast? But today, in the spirit of annual legislative sessions, I figured I was going to talk a tiny bit about my experience interning for the legislature in South Dakota last year during 2022, uh, as well as a bit about what's going on right now during Tennessee's current General Assembly. And I realize that it's highly possible that you've never lived in either of these states, which may leave you wondering why any of this is relevant to you, why you should care. And to me, it's pretty simple. Um, Two things. Your state might be proposing similar legislation to what I'm going to talk about today, um, or at least different legislation on the same issues. So you may want to look into what your state is doing. Also, when one state uh, makes a stance, okay, on a hot topic issue, other states notice, even if the general population doesn't, um, politicians and government entities, they're keeping track of what other states are doing to either, you know, completely contradict it or to join forces and pretty much do the same thing in their state. So if one state, conservative state, does something, okay, another conservative state is likely to look at that and be like, oh, well, that's what they're doing. Maybe we should propose something similar, just like a democratic state might look at something another democratic state does and be like, oh, maybe we should do that too. So it is kind of a good thing to be aware of what's going on in other states. You don't have to keep tabs on every single bill, but it is nice to know sometimes. And then the other thing that I'm going to be talking about as far as just my experience with um, the drama that happens in the legislature, um, you know, It's not really necessarily applicable to your everyday life, but I didn't know that this was how things kind of functioned, and that might be kind of a naive perspective. You might be like, well, obviously stuff like this happens once I get into it, but uh, I just think it's kind of interesting to, to know certain things. So for those of you who don't know my whole political journey, okay, uh, my first podcast episode that I ever published, you can go back and listen to it because I detail some of my political journey there. But when I was in college, when I was in university, one of my majors was government. I had since high school, you know, increasingly become more interested in what was going on around me and what was being instituted in all these states and how it was affecting me and my family in daily life. And I was like, you know, I want to know how this works, even if I don't ever go into any like sort of politician position or whatever or campaigning or even if I don't ever do any of that okay I still want to you know be able to learn how these processes work and how these decisions are made because really you know despite 
plenty of exposure to Schoolhouse Rock as a kid. Once you get to high school, a lot of the stuff that you should know just kind of like takes a back burner. Um, I know some people are really good at trivia and they can remember all the important dates in American history, but I'm not one of those people. I would be the person that somebody walked up to on the street with trivia questions. I would be the person who looked stupid. Um, I would be the the stupidity compilation, you know. But regardless of all of that, I really did just want to further my understanding so that I could be more aware and more knowledgeable of the things that were going on around me. So uh, that led to me taking an internship with Senator Haggerty's office in Nashville uh, in summer of 2021. And that was really cool because I'd never done anything like that. And I was like, I'm going to learn so much. It's going to be great. And I did learn a decent amount of how things worked in a, a senator's home office because he is a U.S. senator. So he spent most of his time in Washington, D.C. I never met the guy. Okay. It was quite impersonal of an experience. But I did work with the special projects coordinator for that you know, office. And so I wrote a lot of recommendation letters for state agencies. And I wrote a lot of thank you cards for things we got in the mail. And I interacted quite a bit with constituents on the phone and emails and letters. And um, let's just put it this way. I got yelled at a lot because Haggerty's a Republican. And so, you know, Democrats would call upset about his legislation saying he wasn't listening to the constituents and then Republicans would call because they did not like what he was doing for the party. And so it was very rare that I got a phone call where somebody was like, tell Senator Haggerty that like everything he's doing is so great and I love him so much. It was very, very rare. But it did give me some further insight into how constituent opinion is kind of factored in when it comes to a, you know, U.S. level senator. And even though I did learn a decent amount doing that internship, it was a very short internship. I didn't really get to see too much into the behind the scenes of things. And so when I had the opportunity to go to South Dakota and intern for their state legislature for the entirety of their 2022 legislative session, I was like, oh, I was like, that's awesome. This is a really great opportunity. And I was like, and I get to go to a completely different state and people will be like, well, why didn't you apply to the one in Tennessee? And uh, to that, I'm just kind of like, honestly, I didn't think about it because I was living in Texas when I initially was searching for internships, when I was looking for like the one that I ended up getting with Senator Haggerty's office. And when I was Google searching for internships that way, I found the South Dakota internship. And so I kind of bookmarked it because I thought it was cool. And then when the opportunity came and I was like, oh, I can actually do this, I applied to that. And I didn't even think twice about the fact that I had moved to Tennessee and that I could just go do the legislature in Tennessee. Like I didn't even think about it. But <laughs> so I ended up in South Dakota, way, way up there where it's cold and, you know, I have to drive like, you know, two days straight just to get there. Yeah, that that's what I did with my time. In my defense though, I am young. Um, I'm 20 now. I was 19 when I did the internship in South Dakota. And I think as a young person, I, I do have a little bit of permission, a little bit of leeway to gallivant across the country for no apparent reason. So uh, that's what I did. And I'm really glad I did it because I learned 
a lot despite the drive to get there and the cold weather i mean i was like waking up at four o'clock in the morning and i would get ready a bit and then i'd go out to my truck and i'd start it to get the heat going and then i would go back inside and finish getting ready and come out like 20 30 minutes later because not all of us have newer vehicles so gotta wait for the engine to warm up and the heater to kick in and all that fun stuff but um despite uh all of that <laughs> it was worth it it was so worth it because i learned so much let's just uh put it this way okay this is how i'll put it i showed up in the town with a glowing opinion of governor christy Noam up there um and one of the other interns that i ended up you know kind of buddying up with because we were both on the same committee uh, he made fun of me like later on in the session. He was just like, I remember your first day when you came in here and you introduced yourself and you were just talking about how great Governor Noam is and how that's the whole reason you came here. And I was like, to be fair, in my defense, I didn't know what to say. I hate introducing myself. I was also a week late to my internship because uh, Tennessee got hit with a snowstorm and my truck was in the shop when that happened and so then i had to wait for people to actually like go back to work with the snow and and then i had to wait on parts for my truck and then i finally was able to get up to south dakota like a week after everything had already started so i was late and i had to introduce myself like to big groups of people like three different times on my first day and then i had to go take my oath on the house floor alone when everybody else did it like the first week together and you know I'm a pretty independent person I did theater as a kid I'm not like a whole bundle of nerves when it comes to that type of thing but it is kind of like the whole spotlights on you even if people don't care it's like ah so that's my defense for pretty much being like oh my god uh, I don't know why I'm here but uh Governor Gnome is the best and uh yeah <laughs> I was uh struggling but he made fun of me, this intern. He was just like, he was just like, I remember when, you know, that happened. And I was like, shut up, man. <laughs> I was like, I've learned a lot since I've been here. Because when I showed up, I had a certain opinion of the woman. And it took probably less than a month of spending almost every day at the Capitol building uh, for the celebrity of it all to fade. I don't want to make this specifically about Noam, but I do think it kind of put things in perspective for me. Because part of a politician's job is public appearance. If they don't look good to the public, people don't want to vote for them, right? Uh, in this case, I was, you know, the only intern for that legislative session that was from out of state. So where I had seen a lot of Governor Nome's national coverage on how free of a state South Dakota was and how they didn't shut down and how they refused to and how it was the best state for businesses because they didn't shut down businesses. Um, once I was actually in all of it, I became aware of some of the things that Governor Noam had wanted to do in the name of COVID, things that were ultimately pushed back on by other people and therefore tabled, uh, and then some things that she actually did put in place as emergency measures. And I was like, oh, okay. And it's like, you know, you can sit there all day long and be like, well, you know, I guess I should have looked into things a bit deeper, you know, if I just pulled up some of her um, you know, documents and stuff that she had signed over the last couple of years, then, you know, I would have known this thing. <laughs> I would have known it. I wouldn't have been caught off guard. But uh, at the same time, that is how it is for most people. 
even if you're in your own state, do you keep track of everything that your own governor signs? Some people do, but a lot of us have our lives to live and we have other commitments and we have family and we have friends and we have things to keep track of that are a bit more crucial to our everyday functionality. So I, I, I'm not going to beat up on myself too much for not knowing this stuff ahead of time. I think that we all know politicians are playing theater to a certain extent, some more than others, but I also think there's a major difference in purpose when it comes to smaller state representatives and then when you cross over into the purpose of being a career politician. There are people who enter the political space because they genuinely have a passion for the people in their you know, district for the people in their state, for the people in their country. And they have outside endeavors that they focus all of their career energy towards, or they're a parent and that's where all the rest of their energy goes. And so they're not in it for the spotlight. So there are plenty of people, and I've met plenty of representatives exactly like that. And it is very refreshing to be around people in political spaces who genuinely have or try their best to have their constituents' interest at heart, you know? But then there's also state representatives and state senators and U.S. congressmen and women and governors and presidents and vice presidents. There's all these people in politics who are, I would say, more likely to be career politicians. If their energy is mainly focused on their career as a politician, the lines are more likely to get blurred on why you're even in the position that you are in the first place. And your opinion of your constituents' opinion is less likely to be, oh, well, I need to do what's in their best interest. I need to, you know, do what they're asking of me. And instead, it's going to be more along the lines of, well, what looks good because I need to be up for re-election or I need to be up for election in this higher position. But I just think that was something that kind of was put into perspective for me a bit when I was up in South Dakota and like in it practically every day was just the the differences in people's purpose for being where they were. And I think this stuff probably also varies, you know, in states where the population is smaller or larger and also how on the map that particular state is to the rest of the country. I know when I was in South Dakota, I met a lot of representatives who genuinely, they were real people. They were not in it to be a career politician. At least that wasn't their goal. And I don't know how the inner workings are in any other state because I haven't been working in the state legislature in any other state, but I would assume that in states that are more rural, I would assume in states where there's less people that is more likely to be the case. You are going to meet more people who are not really in it for the spotlight. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know how things work in Tennessee. I would imagine that it feels a little bit less homey than working the legislature in South Dakota. But I, again, I have no experience to, um, you know, line up with that. So I don't know. As far as my opinion with Governor Noam goes, it was just kind of like a shock to the system, not like, oh my God, because I wasn't necessarily surprised. It was just kind of like a revelation. I was like, oh, okay, this is how it is. But whether you agree with these things or not, um, what 
was actually happening in the state completely contradicted the picture that she was presenting to the rest of the country. If you shut down for COVID, but you only did it for a couple months, and that was way less in comparison to the rest of the states, then why not come on national television and be honest about that? Say, hey, we shut down, but we've opened back up. We've been open for a hot minute now, and we realized pretty quickly that this was not going to work for our state because we need businesses to be allowed the freedom to run, and we need our people to be able to live their lives. Like It's one thing to come on and admit that that's what happened versus coming on, and whether you directly lie about it or not, you're still painting a picture that South Dakota was never shut down, that businesses were never, you know, affected, that people were never affected. And so I, I think there's that picture that the nation was getting, and then there's what the state was actually experiencing. When things heated up towards the end of the legislative session last year in South Dakota, tensions were so high between Governor Noam and the legislature that when I asked one of the legislators to see if I could talk to Noam privately and get a picture with her and stuff before I left town, because, I mean, regardless of differing views, I mean, it's still cool to meet Governor Christy Noam and be like, hey, I met this woman. Isn't that cool? Um, but when I asked legislators to do that, I had one legislator who had just like walked off the House floor and was like grabbing snacks from the little snack table in the hallway. And she said something along the lines of like, well, if I'd known you'd wanted to talk to her, I would have asked her before I voted just now. Like, she probably won't even text me back because she's not going to be happy about the way I voted. And I was like, really? Come on. I'm like, I'm from out of state. I don't live here. I can't just drive up to the Capitol and meet her like personally whenever. And so, um, yeah, it was just kind of one of those things. Let's just say I went through quite the list of legislators in my campaign to get a private audience with the governor. It was a lot of asking. And I personally don't feel like, you know, tensions over business matters should, you know, affect uh, the personal relationship in which somebody wants to, you know, meet a governor that they're excited to meet. However, that it is what it is. It is what it is. But you may be wondering, what was this heated drama over? Why was why were things so tense? And I'll try to spare you the painstaking details of what they have to listen to on the Appropriations Committee, which is where I was at. That's budgets and numbers and all of that fun stuff. But pretty much, South Dakota, like a lot of other states, had been given by the federal government like this insane amount of COVID funding over the that couple year time span. Okay. There was just so much money um, given to the states that had to be appropriated on where it was going to be spent. And there were stipulations and regulations and all the stupid stuff, okay, that goes uh, with that money. If you're going to use it, you have to use it under these guidelines. And there was this specific amount of money, it was like millions, I think like $60 million, but don't quote me on that, that was supposed to go towards um, daycares. And when I tell you there were hours spent on this situation in committee. I mean, there were 
hours. I mean, there were days, okay? We spent so much time sitting through meetings on this stuff, hearing from different lobbyist groups, hearing from mothers who use the daycare systems, hearing from daycare workers, hearing about the budget for daycares in the state, hearing about the things that they needed and the things that they wanted for improvements and the ways that they would use the money. We listened to it all. Okay. But there was so much like anxiety, I feel like. Like people who wanted the money to be given to the daycares were so anxious. They were like, it needs to happen now. It needs to happen now. It needs to happen now. And then there were people who were like just trying to understand how it was actually all going to pan out because that's the job of the appropriations committee is to consider everything that's going to go into this decision before they make the decision. There were people on that side who were like, okay, we want it to go to the daycares. We're not stopping it from going to the daycares, but we need to make sure that it's happening properly. There was just a lot of tension because the Appropriations Committee is supposed to do things a very specific way. Anything budgetary, anything with large amounts of money, okay, anything money <laughs> is supposed to go through the Appropriations Committee for a reason because they're actually hearing from, you know, people who can talk about the state budgets. They're actually hearing from every single, you know, in state entity, state agency, okay, and lobbyist group that wants to come forward and talk about this legislation. They're hearing about it all in committee, separate from what all the other legislators are focusing on. And so the Appropriations Committee is there to make sure that things are appropriated properly and everything is supposed to flow through them. Now, a big area of tension during that legislative session was that a lot of the representatives in the House and a lot of the senators in the Senate were pretty much going, okay, well, why does it have to go through the Appropriations Committee? Why? Why is it necessary? Especially if it's like COVID relief funding. It's a, it's emergency uh, use, okay, authorization, whatever you want to call it. I don't remember what the exact phrasing was, but, you know, it's emergency funds, okay, and they need to be there now. They need to be passed out now because people need them. And why does it need to go through the deliberations of the Appropriations Committee? It doesn't make sense. And the Appropriations Committee was over here like, what do you mean it doesn't make sense? It's literally in the state constitution that we have to do it this way. <laughs> and we've, we're have we just doing our jobs like we've done for decades or like people have been supposed to do for decades. And that's where the kind of issue comes in. Because in this situation, you've got the legislature on one side and you've got the governor's office on the other side. It's the same thing as like Congress and the presidency. Okay, those two things are there to kind of go back and forth and even each other out. It's like checks and balances. That's what it is. The problem that they were dealing with in South Dakota was, you know, kind of, you know, more generally, okay, if you have power, okay, and there are two parties and one party has the power and they're supposed to have the power but then one day they go eh, you know eh, i don't really want this power eh, i'm not really feeling it and so they just kind of leave the power sitting there they leave it there okay um what's the natural thing is the natural thing for the other party to just sit there and stare at the power and go huh that's weird i wonder if they're ever gonna you know actually use that power or is the natural thing for the other party to go, oh, well, they're not using that power. I'm going to take it. I mean, you know, if I was them, I would. Okay, if there's just a big black hole of power sitting there, somebody's going to take it. That's just how things work. And so the situation in South Dakota was pretty much that the legislature, 
the Appropriations Committee in years past had pretty much said, oh, look, we have this power of the purse that's been given to us by our state constitution. Um, you know, I don't really, I'm not really feeling it. I don't know if I really want that. You know, I'm, I'm just going to set it over here where anybody else can, like, take it if they want it. And so the legislature had kind of not been using their power that they're given. And the governor's side of things had been like, oh, look, there's power sitting there. There's the power of the purse right there in front of me and nobody's using it. And so the governor's office had kind of just taken that power. Obviously, when there's power involved, are you is the party that has it just going to give it up willy-nilly, okay? They're going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, you want it back? Sure. Like, that's not realistic. And so that created a lot of tension was that the current Appropriations Committee in 2022 was looking at things and looking at the way things had been done and saying, this hasn't been done properly in the past, and we need to change that. We need to actually be doing things the way that they are outlined in our Constitution. We need to actually be appropriately appropriating funds. And um, the governor's office, who had been kind of taking over that power for a hot minute, was like, uh, sorry, who are you? Who are you to take away this power from me? That caused a ton of tension. And there were actually a lot of legislators who were on the side of the governor's office. You know, some people just didn't understand why the Appropriations Committee was so adamant about doing it a specific way. And then some people were very clear on why, but they were siding with the governor because some of those people had been the previous appropriators who did give the power to the governor's office. So it's just this whole tangled web of power grabs and drama and money, and you've got that whole mess. And then this daycare funding bill comes in. And there was theoretical screaming and gnashing of teeth. And there were even a, several committee meetings with the Joint Appropriations Committee, both Senate and House meeting, where they actually kicked out all of the legislative staff, analysis assistants, all of the interns, like they kicked all of us out to have their little thing, okay, to hash it out. And it was just an ongoing joke for weeks of like, oh, mommy and daddy are fighting again, gotta keep the kids away from the yelling. And so we would just wait out in the hallway with our laptops that were supposed to be taking notes on their committee meeting while they had their committee meeting. So it was it was very interesting because on a certain level, it's like, yeah, you can see why tensions are high. And then on another level, there were so many things that happened were, that were just petty drama. And it's like situations like that where you realize people really are just kids. Like some people never grow up and some of us revert back to our childlike selves when we're in the heat of things because it, it was just really entertaining. At some points it was frustrating, but being on the outside, not actually being one of the people in the fight, it was kind of entertaining. Um, some people got more of a kick out of the drama than I did. I'm not really a drama person. Like, it's entertaining, yeah, but I could do without it. Anyways, that was just a thing. Eventually, the daycare funding did get distributed. There was all sorts of stuff where, like, uh, the governor's office was like, hey, this daycare funding is going to be distributed by this date because we're doing it. And the appropriations committee was like, sorry? 
Nothing's been approved. What do you mean the checks are going out? No checks are going out. And so it was like this whole thing and pretty much put the appropriations committee in a position where they had to go ahead and take care of it because people were already expecting all this money. And then in the end, there were some things that came to light about the funding that were like, oh, well, that didn't even come up in discussion because we didn't spend even more time going through what this actually entailed. Like there were certain regulations on this money that daycare centers had to follow in order to receive the funding that the Appropriations Committee was unaware of when they went through with it all because everything got so tense and dramatic and so rushed that they weren't able to adequately go through everything about the legislation. So it's situations like that where it's like they really do need to spend the time that they spend on deliberating these things. Sometimes we can look at U.S. Congress and stuff and be like, why are they spending this long trying to figure out this one issue? And it's like because there's a lot more to it in committee than what we see just in the bill or what we see just in the news article about the bill. So anyways, maybe there's some insight in any of that. If not, hope it was at least entertaining to you. Moving on, for those of you who don't know, I've been writing for a conservative paper here in Tennessee, and my articles are largely unopinionated reports of goings-on. Uh, no op-eds for me quite yet, but I do look forward to the day in which I can unleash my opinion on the masses through article form. That sounds like fun to me. But our state legislative session is going on right now. It's the 113th gathering of the Tennessee General Assembly. So I've been covering a lot of bills, a lot of proposed legislation. And for this episode, I kind of just want to go into like one or two of those bills that are kind of of note, I guess. Um, so let's get into that. And also just to clarify, I'm not bringing up these bills in order to walk you through every single detail of them. I'm more so talking about this legislation because um, I want to kind of share my insight into what I think might be going on behind the scenes with some of the stuff, both politics-wise and, you know, other factors at play. So that's more of my reason for really going into any of this. All right, so I've got my handy-dandy paper here so I, you know, can make sure I'm referencing things correctly. But pretty much this first piece of legislation I want to talk about affects advocacy organizations in Tennessee. Now, whether or not you're conservative or Democrat or whatever, this affects you. Because advocacy organizations on, on the right, there's ones like Tennessee Stands and Tennessee Right to Life that, you know, advocate for conservative values. I can't name any on the left because I don't really, that's not really my realm of things. But if there are groups that fight for causes, if there's groups that support or uh, oppose legislation, those are typically advocacy groups. They fight for a specific cause, a specific set of beliefs. So... This bill would turn all of those organizations into political action committees. Now, political action committees are typically organizations that solely exist for raising campaign funds, okay? They largely exist to back a specific candidate or a specific group of candidates by fundraising for them. Whereas an advocacy organization is not backing or whatever a specific candidate financially, their main thing is not finances necessarily. They might accept money and donations. They might accept money um, to go towards specific causes, but they're not 
fundraising for somebody's campaign. They're, you know, supporting or opposing legislation. They're the people who are reaching out to specific lobbyist groups that might support or oppose what they're supporting or opposing and making sure people show up at the Capitol and um, share testimony for certain bills. So they're, they're very important to what happens in the legislature. And this bill would effectively kind of cancel all that out. It would kind of get rid of any flack that representatives face when people come forward and say, hey, we don't agree with this, or hey, we agree with this other representative. Like, it, it's pretty much giving the representatives more space to do things without being held accountable. Now, my main problem with this bill revolves largely around how it was written. Because the, the biggest issue with the bill is that it redefines all these organizations to be political action committees. That's like the first section of the bill. And honestly, it's the only part of the bill that actually is coherent writing. The rest of the bill is all about campaign finance. And I would initially, I sat down, okay, and I looked at it and I was like, Maybe I just don't understand this because it's all campaign finance and I'm not a finance person. But then I actually spent like, you know, 30, 45 minutes dissecting the bill. And I was like, no, whoever wrote this needs to be fired. <laughs> okay. Um, and I, I mean that jokingly because, you know, I'm not trying to get anybody fired. But... <laughs> The writing of this bill is just atrocious, okay? One of my biggest issues was, like, every single sentence I was having to sit there and write it correctly in my head, okay? I was having to reword it the way it should have been written just to understand it. There's a lack of clarity in this bill, and there's a lack of transparency in this bill. And if you ask me, when you get a bill like this where it's this is 10 pages long, okay? When you get a bill like this where it's extremely long and it's not just that it's in legalese, okay? It's that the sentences are just full of repetition, okay? Nothing is written in proper English. It doesn't make sense, okay? If you say a sentence, okay, you don't go, the candidate will act accordingly in accordance with the candidate's blah, 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 blah. You don't use that type of repetition, there's no clarity, there's no conciseness. And when I see a bill like this, my first thought is, was it written like this on purpose? Because not everybody in the legislature is dissecting every single bill that makes it to the House floor or the Senate floor. That's not happening. That's why there are committees. That's why there are subcommittees. It is so that there is a select group of representatives or senators um, specifically focusing on certain bills usually bills that are more in their area of expertise or knowledge. And so there is a reason that some of these bills are written so confusingly, if you ask me. It's so that they can kind of slide a few things in under the radar that hopefully people don't notice. Most people, even most legislators, won't notice. It's up to that committee, that particular subcommittee, whoever it is, to become aware of that. And if the person who wrote the bill can slip a few things in that confuse the subcommittee or the committee or whoever is reading it, then they can kind of spin it whichever way they want to spin it when they're explaining it. And it's just, it's a whole mess if you ask me, but it's something that people do. And for the record, 
that is also another reason why advocacy organizations and lobbyist groups are so important when it comes to the legislative process and committees, okay, is because they might catch something that people on the committee don't. Okay, they might bring something to the attention of the committee, whether it's, you know, not correct or whether it's kind of off or whatever. They might point something out, even if it's not completely accurate, um, that the committee will look further into because it's been brought up. And then they will go, oh, wait, you're, you're right. That doesn't make sense. Or you're right. That doesn't advocate for the group of people it claims to advocate for, etc. Okay, so that's another reason why advocacy organizations are important. and. This bill pretty much would cause advocacy organizations to either conform to the redefinition as a political action committee, okay, and then they would be subject to all the regulations and penalties that were originally meant for campaign finance, okay, these organizations are not campaign finance organizations, but they would have to either deal with that, which would kind of automatically make them no longer advocacy organizations, um, and they wouldn't be able to do what they do currently, or they would have to pretty much be like, oh, okay, well, we are an advocacy organization, but we can't support or oppose legislation. We can't support or oppose candidates. So this legislation would pretty much kill advocacy organizations within the state of Tennessee. It's it's just insane. But these are kind of my big issues and my little things about this bill. I just, it's a bad bill. It's It's not a good bill. Okay. That, that's, that's that. Now, the issues with that bill are in large part more politically focused. Uh, the next one I want to talk about, HB 263. Okay, it's a House bill brought forth by Representative Ritchie. And this one is focused on vaccines and vaccine mandates. Present law pretty much prohibits any governmental entities, any schools, and any local education agencies from mandating that somebody gets the COVID-19 vaccine. And then it also prohibits them from mandating that a business or school require proof that a person has received the COVID-19 vaccine. And it prohibits them from compelling or otherwise taking adverse action to compel a person to provide proof of COVID-19 vaccine for any reason. Um, even if an employer is exempt from these general prohibitions, they are still required to grant COVID-19 vaccine exemptions requests made on the basis of medical or religious circumstances. So that is present law that was put in place, I think, last year. And what this bill is looking to do is to pretty much expand those prohibitions to any future emergency use authorized vaccines. It's not talking um, all the vaccines that already exist, okay? It's talking specifically about emergency use vaccines, and it's pretty much just being put in place as a preventative measure for the future um, in case something happens again like the COVID-19 vaccine. The thing about this bill is that on the same day it was passed on first consideration in the House, which means it's been introduced, it's been read to everybody, they're aware of it, um, and then it'll eventually get brought up again and then assigned to committee. Um, the same day it was passed on first consideration, it was also withdrawn. 
And when a bill like this is withdrawn, especially so suddenly, it can kind of look a bit shady because there are a lot of politics that go on behind the scenes. There are a lot of Republicans who don't really want to support Republican legislation. And so that kind of looked to be the case. I had written a whole article on Representative Ritchie's vaccine bills um, before it got withdrawn. And then we saw that it had been taken out of consideration and we were like, oh, well, why? (laughs) And so I reached out to Representative Ritchie and he kind of walked me through why the legislation was withdrawn. And this is the thing, okay, like sometimes bills are withdrawn because they meet so much flack from their colleagues in the House of Representatives or their colleagues in the Senate. And people are pretty much like, I'm not going to support this bill. Um, You're killing our public appearance and it's not happening. So you should probably withdraw it because nobody's going to support it. Or they'll be like, if you withdraw this bill, then I'll support this. Or if you withdraw this bill, then I'll vote for this or I'll do this for you. And so there's all sorts of like, you know, agreements and political moves that are made when it comes to the state legislature. But this one specifically, I did reach out to Representative Ritchie and he pretty much said that his reasoning for withdrawing this bill was that there was a part of the legislation, there was a section of that bill that discounted the entire point of him writing the bill. Just the way it was worded, the way it worked out legally, um, it would have completely made null and void what present law is, and it wouldn't have done what he wanted the bill to do. So I was like, that's fair. That makes sense. And in our conversation, I asked him, I was like, will you be proposing another bill that does do what this one was intended to do? And he pretty much was walking me through some of the legislation he's working on and Uh, He's trying to figure out what bills he's going to actually go through with because in a lot of states, there's a limit on how many bills a legislator can propose for a legislative session. And in Tennessee this year, they have a deadline of January 31st for any new legislation that they're going to propose. They can't do any new things after this. Um, So he pretty much was like, If I don't bring forward a bill that does what this one is intended to do, I'm going to get somebody else to back a bill that does what this one was intended to do. So that was his statement on the situation. I guess we'll find out if we see uh, a similar legislation that does what this one was supposed to do, then we'll know that that was actually the case and it was just a matter of language and legality. Um, And if we don't see any similar legislation, then maybe there was something else to the whole situation of withdrawing that bill. Who knows? It's a whole mess. Everything's always a mess. We're humans. We're special. But we'll see. Ultimately, when it comes to legislative sessions, I'm not usually too terribly optimistic about outcomes. Uh, There are some good things that come out of this, but with rhinos in office, as they're so-called, you know, Republicans who tend to vote more towards Democrat interests, there's those situations. And then there's also situations where Republicans do vote for Republican bills, but those bills are not really lined up with my personal views. I mean, that's just how politics works. It, you know, sucks to suck. I guess we're all human. But um, I recently posted a few shorts uh, on my pages about some proposed legislation in Iowa Uh, regarding food stamps. And 
after being reminded of how strongly the Republican Party feels about government assistance programs, I think this legislation is going to be the inspiration for my next podcast episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. Anyways, thanks for tuning into the show. If you enjoyed watching the YouTube video, make sure to give it a like and subscribe to the channel. Uh, over the next couple weeks, I'll be joining the host of Forge and Anvil podcast for a quick discussion on a few more state issues like these. So make sure to keep up with Subtle Rampage on Facebook and Instagram at Subtle Rampage Podcast, and I'll make sure to post more information on that soon. With that, I'll let you get on with your lives. However, if your life involves cleaning or writing or chilling in bed and you're not caught up on previous episodes of the podcast, well, this is the perfect time to give those a listen. I'll be back with a new episode next week. <laughs>